that you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. The second reading is from Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 43. Chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, who causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The third reading is from 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4. Starting at... Oh, sorry, I have written five, and I said four because it was the top of the page. (laughs) 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verse 16. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And that's that's the word of the Lord. Here's a uh, question for us to ponder. Why is there so little suffering in the world? Why is there so little suffering in the world? You might consider that one of the least pastorally sensitive things I've ever said. And that, if you do, that would be amazing considering the scope and variety of pastorally insensitive things that I've said over the years. (laughs) So you might be a little reassured to know that I've asked this ever so slightly provocative question for a reason. Why is there so little suffering in the world? I'll get back to answering that question uh, in a minute. But today we start a a new series of sermons, uh, our doctrinal sermon series, a sermon series looking at the doctrines of applied redemption. Uh, The word uh, doctrine simply means teaching. We'll be looking at ideas that help us to understand what the Bible says and how to live as Christians in response. And today we'll be looking at one idea called common grace. Common grace is the idea that God is nice to everyone, even those who are not nice to him. Or, more technically, common grace is the grace that God extends to all humanity, 
irrespective of whether they acknowledge him or believe in him or put their faith in him or not. Uh, Grace, uh, by the way, uh, is is a general word. Grace means unmerited, undeserved, unearned kindness. The way in which God is loving and kind to all because he is gracious. Uh, Theologians make a distinction between common grace, which I've just defined, and saving grace, which is kind of like a, a special part of common grace. Saving grace is the kindness of God informing a saved people, a people belonging to him a people who are saved completely from sin, death, judgment, the wrath of God, and the fires of hell. That's saving grace. But today we'll look at common grace. And thereafter in this series, we'll look at doctrines that together help us to understand saving grace. Those doctrines being election, effective calling, regeneration, conversion, justification, adoption, sanctification, and a whole other bunch of shun words. But today, in thinking about common grace, let's start firstly by considering the surprise of common grace. The surprise of common grace. When uh, the priest named Isaiah, son of Amos, suddenly found himself face to face with the Lord God Almighty in the throne room of God in the temple. The words that popped out of his mouth were these, Woe to me! I am ruined! For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Suddenly in God's presence, Isaiah experienced firsthand the holiness of God, his utter perfection, the utter perfection of his character and being in every conceivable way. And Isaiah understood undoubtedly as never before the incredible incompatibility of God's holiness with anything that is unholy. The existence of God, Isaiah knew, could not tolerate his existence because he was a profane being, sinful, evil. And in one way or another, that that experience is common to to, to all who come to faith in Jesus Christ. We, we, We realize in the presence of God, we realize we need a Savior. God is holy, and we are sinful, and the two things will never go together unless God does something to save us. The, the surprise, the surprise of common grace then is the wonder that we don't all simply vaporize the moment we sin against God. Adam was warned indeed on the very day. He was warned that on the very day he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. On that very day he would die. Surprisingly, he didn't die. Indeed, he didn't die for many years to come. But in an important sense, actually, he did die on that day. Adam and Eve were immediately expelled from the presence of the Lord, expelled from the Garden of Eden. And in that sense, spiritually, they really did die on that day. But he didn't die physically for many years to come. 
Furthermore, Peter talks in his second epistle about how God punishes rebellious angels immediately with everlasting punishment. Angels, uh, higher beings than us, with greater powers and greater responsibilities, it would appear that they are the recipients of less grace because they're punished immediately and with everlasting punishment. Given that we know that God is holy and that this is his universe, the surprise of common grace is that people don't instantly die when they sin, when they rebel against the Lord God Almighty. Indeed, the surprise of common grace is that they don't immediately enter into everlasting punishment. Therefore, the surprise of common grace does not arise from observation of the world, but rather it arises from our experience of God. We know that he is holy and perfect in his holiness. So why, when he doesn't have to, does he put up with rebellion? Why indeed is he kind to those who treat him with contempt? the surprise of common grace. Now, the nature of common grace, how is it manifest? Well, actually, the kindness of God in common grace has many different manifestations. It is seen in God's gracious and generous material provision for us and for all living creatures. In the immediate aftermath of Adam and Eve's sin, God cursed the ground, introducing futility, and toil into Adam's husbandry of the land. But, indeed, actually, the surface of the earth is not all thorns and thistles. It's not all weeds or desert or desolation or wasteland. Rather, as Jesus himself said, God sends sunshine and rain on both the righteous and the wicked. The earth continues to provide for our needs food, clothing and shelter, indeed allowing beauty, diversity and abundance. We, we know uh, that the psalmist, we know that the psalmist is speaking proverbially, he's kind of making a generalization in, when he says in Psalm 145, and we all said it together earlier this morning, we, we know that he's speaking proverbially when he says the Lord is good to all, having compassion on all of his creatures, opening his hand in order to satisfy the desires of every living thing. We know that that isn't actually always and everywhere true all of the time. Yet and nevertheless, that shouldn't stop us from seeing the wonder and the miracle of the fact that actually it is overwhelmingly true, nevertheless. In human domain, uh, dominion sorry, and authority. Although we ought to have forfeited all rights and powers in our sin, God continued to allow us to rule over his creation. Indeed, one aspect of common grace is our individual and corporate intellectual power. Even people who deny the creator's existence can meaningfully investigate and explore his creation. And out of this comes resources that we can all share in terms of medicine and science and technology. 
in moral vision. Even though in our corporate sin we ought to have fallen in love with evil, we haven't. And that is the grace of God. It was an act of sheer grace that God determined that even so there would be continuing enmity between the seed of Eve and the seed of the serpent, Genesis chapter 3. That was sheer grace to finish that love affair right there. Even though we are evil, we hate evil. Uh, This makes us, of course, uh, endlessly in denial about the fact that we are evil, but even though we are evil, we hate evil. And we kind of agree as to what that is. And that is a manifestation of God's common grace, the grace given to all humanity. All human beings, generally speaking, know that it is wrong to lie, good to work hard, good to seek the truth. Another way of saying this is that we we all have a conscience, and in very broad measure, all human beings, whether saved or unsaved, believing or unbelieving, righteous or wicked, we all basically agree on right versus wrong, don't we? The wrongness of lying, theft, of kidnap and murder, of rape and adultery, etc., etc. In a comment on this grace, uh, Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law of Moses, do instinctively the things of the law, these people, though not having the law, are a law unto themselves, in that they show the work of the law is written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternatively accusing them or else defending them. Conscience, law. And although... We have all fallen short of the glory of God, our glory being to be in his likeness and in his image. We have been given the grace to continue to be creative, just like our creator. And in this, human artistry and skill, in terms of, for example, the performing and visual arts, is truly awe-inspiring. It's astonishing. It's staggering what we can do. Whether we're talking about the Louvre in Paris or Cirque du Soleil in Perth or the ballet in Moscow, we are capable of extraordinary things. Whilst our rejection of God was a vote in favor of chaos and anarchy, by God's grace, by God's common grace to all humanity, He has continued to allow us to form governments and have rulers so that at least in theory and hopefully more often than not we live in peace and security. And Paul commands us, the Church of Christ, he commands us that first of all prayers be offered for kings and rulers and those in authority, 1 Timothy chapter 2. For as he tells us in Romans 13, there is no authority except that which God has established. And one last manifestation of common grace, answered prayer. God doesn't just answer our prayers. Indeed, in the Gospels, Jesus heals people irrespective of their faith. He raises dead little girls who have never heard of him. And he heals crippled middle-aged men who immediately dob him into the authorities. Jesus is kind and gracious to everyone, 
in perfect revelation of his Father, who is kind and gracious to everyone. As is widely acknowledged, even atheists pray, and by common grace, all humanity knows that God exists. It's part of what it means to be human. There also exists various levels of denial, of course, but knowledge of God in some way or another is a part of what it means to be human. It's a manifestation of common grace. We know he exists. One further aspect of common grace is, and this is wonderful, it's amazing, God desires continuously to increase common grace. It's a commodity he wants to give more and more of. For example, the Lord promised Abraham that he would not destroy a wicked city for the sake, indeed, of only ten righteous people living within it. That's amazing. Isn't that gracious? God blessed Potiphar's household for the sake of Joseph, who was living in it. And last week, we read together the second commandment, wherein God promises to bless, to show love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. Common grace increases, indeed, in each generation, simply by virtue of something sometimes called intergenerational blessings. That, indeed, we do actually make the world a better place, generation by generation, God bestowing wide blessings simply because some are obeying his commandments and loving him. That some, by definition, is, is the covenant people of God in Christ. As James May himself observes, the world's better now than it was in the 70s. Everything's better. And he is more right than wrong. And this leads us to the significance of common grace, which is essentially that common grace is a precondition necessary for saving grace. In, in any number of ways, the, the Church of Christ could not exist except by way, firstly, of common grace. The grace given to all humanity to continue to exist and to mature. Let's listen to Peter, Second Peter chapter 3. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The point of common grace is that God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the sinner, but rather is wanting everyone to come to repentance and to saving faith in him through Jesus his son. So if that's common grace, where do we get common grace wrong? Well, we get common grace wrong when we deny its existence. Uh, in the sinfulness, I think we're on the next slide, Russ, thank you. Um, in the sinfulness and limitedness um, of our birth, we figure that the reason for the universe is us. We figure that the reason for the universe is our own existence. The world owes us a living, in other words, seeing as we've graciously condescended to get born into it. To the unregenerate mind, common grace is upside-down thinking. 
a perverse insistence on looking at the sunny side of things without referral to facts. But as I've hopefully made clear, once we've really come to grips with the existence of God and his nature and his character as holy, common grace is miraculous, something indeed to celebrate and wonder about. That's, that's one mistake. We deny its existence. Alternatively, we can make common grace the focus of all that we do. And if we focus exclusively on common grace, then we'll lose sight of saving grace. And I must confess, I think we must confess, that this is something that the Anglican Church regularly does. It's um, parodied in various works of fiction, but think, for example, of the Vicar of Dibley. Or uh, the Reverend Mr. Elton in uh, Emma, Jane Austen's Emma. Or perhaps Mr. Collins in Pride and Prejudice. With their beloved harvest festivals and blessing of the animals. With Easter and Christmas pressed into service simply as celebrations of various seasons of the year. Their spirituality seems completely focused on common grace. Giving thanks to God for his saving works known only through material provision, safety, and health. They, they focus exclusively on common grace and, in response, preach moralistic sermons. Be nice, just as your Father in heaven is nice. Uh, sure, they celebrate common grace, but they do not seem to know anything about the cross. They, they don't understand saving grace. They don't understand that's the reason why they're there. I, uh, I specifically chose for today the hymn Morning Has Broken as our opening hymn because it is a celebration of common grace. Yes, that hymn was my fault. <laughs> if, that hymn, if that hymn gets up your nose... I do apologize, it's not everybody's cup of tea, but if that hymn gets up your nose, it's possibly because you associate it not unreasonably with churches that major on common grace and have lost sight completely of God's saving work for us through Jesus, his son. So that's a second error, to focus on it exclusively. A third error is to confuse common grace and saving grace, compounding them into one thing. Common grace does not save people eternally in and of itself. It's a precondition. But we, God's people, are saved through the cross of Christ. And we, as God's people, have observed right from the earliest times, we have observed that God sometimes showers people who ignore him with greater and greater blessings with intelligence and ability, uh, with, with good looks and charm, with opportunity and luck, with wealth and health and worldly happiness. And they ignore him. An occupational hazard indeed for the saved person is the envy of the unsaved person. That's a thing. It's throughout Scripture, Psalm 73 is a song about it. Envying the wicked man the unrighteous, as the, whole, as, the, as the Old Testament puts it, for all the ways in which God has shielded them from suffering and blessed them abundantly and allowed them to prosper 
and even to tolerate their boasting that it's because they did it their way. But the upshot of all this blessing, of all this common grace blessing, the upshot, interestingly, the upshot of all this blessing is that, curiously, it moves people further away from God, not closer to him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. We, we need to be clear thinking about this and understand when we look around at the world um, outside. Common grace allows us to acknowledge that a person might indeed be very blessed and indeed do many good works, humanly speaking, devoting their lives to helping the poor or healing the sick and yet miss out completely on heaven and its joys. But rather indeed to find themselves condemned on the last day to everlasting punishment, everlasting destruction. Saving grace is different to common grace. And it is to that that we turn our attention next week. So lastly then for this morning, how do we respond to the knowledge of common grace? I have two responses. Firstly, we understand how staggeringly gracious common grace actually is. So we should rethink our grumbles and fall down in worship and in praise. Why is there so little suffering in the world. Many years ago, a friend of mine who, who um, is a scientist told me about how um, when um, he considers just how incredibly complex all of our individual systems are, the unimaginable complexity of our body and the extraordinary, extraordinary way that develops in the womb, he said in the light of understanding how complex we are, he's just staggered it ever goes right simply beyond comprehension that the vast majority of us actually come out just right with five fingers and five toes and the ability to say no and mine soon after that. <laughs> yes, 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 there is indeed, there is indeed absolutely no doubt, there is unimaginable suffering in the world and in every life too. And I, I don't want to make light of that. But as Christians, we know that our very existence is first and foremost a manifestation of the kindness 
of a loving God. A God who indeed loves all his creatures, everybody, everything he has made. So then, a good response is to make thanksgiving our foundational, our fundamental posture, thanksgiving, to fill our prayers with thanks for all the good things that we've received and to do that every day. Even when, perhaps especially when, we also feel desperately in need. Um, Thanksgiving is a spiritual discipline that I've spoken on before, so I don't want to say too much about it today, but it is always worth saying that the importance of thanksgiving cannot be overstated. It is a most powerful weapon when it comes to spiritual warfare. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Christ Jesus. That's our first response. Praise, worship, thanksgiving. A second response shouldn't surprise anybody either. Second response is go and do likewise. The, the whole point of humanity is to reveal who God is to his creation. So then we, God's redeemed children, we must work hard to copy God in this area of common grace. So to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Love those who treat you contemptuously. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If somebody takes your coat... Do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. For if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. And you will be children of the Most High. Because he is kind to the ungrateful, and to the wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. To God be the glory, now and always, in Christ's name. Amen.